healers gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Goblin ringleader, enlistment officer, Sylvan safekeeper, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashan Raw on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. to episode 52 of the eternal glory podcast rebuilding everything i'm phil gallagher joined by bryant cook and brian koval how are you all doing tonight We're, i'm going yeah it's i'm a weird mix <laughs> i'm in about the the same boat i just had one of those off days where like a bunch of things went wrong i was tired i had a headache tried to nap couldn't nap had video rendering issues that like have still stumped me to this time just it's just one of those off days for me yeah let me let me hit you with my last seven days or so so we record on tuesday nights it's currently tuesday last tuesday night so one week ago i went downstairs to a large amount of standing water in my laundry room that had seeped out through the drywall into the finished part of my basement so there's a large puddle like under the bookshelf where i keep my board games and stuff it was very wet down there so i called a plumber the plumber comes out Thursday morning, turns out the entire main sewage line out of my house is just made of old terracotta pipes from the 1950s. And there are lots of reasons you don't make pipes out of terracotta anymore, including they they uh, seep water, they're not airtight, they fall apart. When things move, they don't stretch, they just break. So there are a number of gaps in the sewage line where you can just see actual dirt. Like I walk, I walked through with them with the, the snake camera and saw all this. So there's gaps in the actual pipes where you can just see the, the earth. And then between the gaps, there's dips. So gravity isn't even like sliding the sewage out of my house. Like it's just collecting in plateaus along the way and causing backups, which all of the water that was on the the floor of my basement got there because it ran into the raw sewage that was plugging up in these plateaus because my pipes are made of stuff that pipes shouldn't be made of and also aren't installed correctly. So he snaked it out for the time being. He was like, this will keep you for a little while. And then uh, sent out this cleanup crew who came out the next day to assess the state of the basement. They identified that the, the drywall wall separating my laundry room from the finished part of the basement was just completely saturated with essentially feces water so just just poop like the poop of myself and my girlfriend and anyone else who may have lived in this house before us is just in the walls and it's also under the floorboards down there so the cleanup crew was here yesterday monday morning cutting out all of those walls ripping up the floorboards all of that is gone and there's currently about a half dozen industrial-sized dehumidifiers just running 24-7. They'll be down there for three or four days, just making sure everything is bone dry. And once that happens, a plumber has to come in and jackhammer out 
the basement of the floor of my basement, just the cement basement floor, down to the pipes, replace them, refill the cement, and then once that's done, I have to hire a contractor to rebuild my basement. And so the last couple days have been me on the phone with the plumber, with the cleanup crew, with my insurance adjuster for my homeowner's insurance, which does seem like they're going to cover almost all of this, but they're working really hard not to. Like now, instead of like just getting this work scheduled, the insurance claims adjuster was here this morning, like looking at everything, and she wants the plumber to come back and re camera snake the tube again, this time take video of it so she can see it too. And I am sure just looking for any reason to deny the claim, which would be a huge pain in my ass. But on top of all of this, we're leaving for a vacation on Saturday, which should be a joyous occasion. Hooray, vacation. But I hate leaving anything unfinished. And this is an enormous thing <laughs> that is going to be left unfinished. So basically what it's going to look like is uh, the plumber's coming Friday to take that video of the sewer line. And then we're leaving Saturday morning. and. Hopefully the uh, moisture suckers will be out of the house by then. But then that's a week where the house is sitting there re-moisturizing. Though no one's going to be running water because we won't be home. But it's still just like, oh my god. And just like planning for all this. And I was hoping we'd be able to let the plumbers in. Just leave them a key. And they can just do all the jackhammering and shit when we're not even home. But they're booked out all of next week. So they couldn't do that. And now I'm looking forward to coming home from vacation. And then listening to a jackhammer in my house for three days, which will also impede any content creation in the house for those three days. So I'm losing a week and three days of content production. And it's safe to say I'm a little stressed out about all this. Yikes. <laughs> so for anyone wondering, like, why we content creators, like, record ahead quite a bit, um, it it's this sort of shit right here. I am. Yikes, Brian. Literally, this sort of shit. Yeah, um... I, I am fortunately currently booked out about 11 days, and I'm going to try to get two a day done Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So I should be booked out like uh, three, like 14 full days by the time we leave for vacation. And I'm hoping the, I mean, the plumbers won't work through the night. So maybe I'll just record night videos instead of during the day and adjust my life for a couple days. But man, this sucks. <laughs> Homeownership is a wild. So Brian, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm done i'm done that was my great i don't have much to say brian i'm sorry that uh your house is falling apart or at least the basement um th the only weird thing that i've experienced is uh this saturday i was talking to my wife and i was like we haven't gone out to eat since we've been back from our honeymoon let's go somewhere we decided that we because we didn't have any reservations we would leave the house at four literally every single place we went to was booked up and is this just post-covid life where you can't go places anymore without a reservation it has to be because we ended up settling for our like fourth choice, which was delicious sushi, but would have liked to get into some of those other places. That has been my experience. Like if you want to go anywhere other than like, you know, the local pub for some burgers or whatever, they, a lot of them have uh, like booking apps or sites or like third party apps manage their booking. And that's just residual from COVID. And you can usually like, even just Google the restaurant, and one of the first things that pops up is like what times they have available and the, the app to jump in there. So I've had success with that. I've also been blown out a number of times before I figured that out. How about you, Phil? Um, 
recently I've been trying to go on some walks, uh, which is becoming increasingly more difficult because, like, my God, it is hot outside. Um, but I've been listening to this other podcast called uh, Check the Wire, um, which is all about just, like, content creation and whatnot. So I've been kind of, like, seeing how other people are doing content creation, kind of hearing some of their tips and tricks and stuff. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed that. So speaking of how hot it's been, recording challenges is super easy for me right now. Uh, our When we bought our house, the old owners left like a bunch of win- uh, window air conditioners. So we have like five or six of them left over, but they're like, kind of loud. So what happens is my matches take 10 minutes, maybe 12, and then I run the air conditioner for 35 minutes. I get paired, I turn it off, I record. Keeps the room nice and cool when it's 95 degrees here in Syracuse. Uh, so like that went really smooth. I tried to record a league and... I was just like dripping sweat by the end of it. I am like, I am a fat slob and I look disgusting. Should I even publish this? Um, yeah, it's just miserable. So this this window that's behind me here um, is, is currently cracked. There's like a three foot crack in it. And two weeks ago, I went to my apartment complex and I'm like, hey, are we at the point where we can do non-emergency repairs? And they were like, oh, yeah, it's like, cool. All right. My window needs to be replaced. And they're like, OK, we'll get on it. Uh, it's been two or three weeks. Haven't heard from them. Uh, it's extremely hot, so my recording is kind of miserable. And I went today and looked at their web portal, and like my request is not even in their system. And I'm just like, uh, I'm I'm surviving, but it is it is it is toasty, and you can't really have a fan on while you record like the. The noise suppression and stuff, it does some some good at filtering that out, but it doesn't get everything, so. I had a comment in today's YouTube video about, and it's, I mean, if you watch it, it's kind of funny. It's like me sitting perfectly still and quiet for about 35 seconds, so that way the audio, or that part of the video would get cut out by our editing software. And I guess, like, there was a little bit of, like, background road noise and it just didn't cut. So somebody commented, like, one minute of no nothing happening, unacceptable uh pretty much and it just makes me think of like all the videos i've uploaded over the last three and a half years yeah. what they thought of those <laughs> yeah yeah it is pretty I, nice. I can never go back now i speaking of weird youtube comments this just i forgot about this because it just fried my brain and i kicked it out but you mentioning that brought it back somebody posted on a video from close to six months ago it was a modern league that i five owed and the the title was like undefeated with fairy ninjas and somebody commented like yesterday, like, you really need to reconsider what you mean by undefeated. It's <laughs> like, wait, I 5 0 the league. Did you want a, a like sweep, like 5 0 10 0 sweep? Like, you need to reconsider what undefeated means. Rando, thank you very much for the engagement, though. <laughs> like, these fucking people, where do they even come from? <laughs> Look, I don't care where they come from as long as they end up on the channel. You're all welcome to get in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I. I, I'm not mad. They, there's at least a view. They watched long enough to see me lose a game, apparently, which, as I recall, didn't happen much in the league. So they must have stuck around. That they were offended enough to make a head-ass comment about it. My uh, Chatterstorm video, the one that hit 15k, I in the title I put like "broken" all caps. I went four one. I lost to like a blue control deck, like it happens. And they're just like, "This deck isn't broken. You went four one." Like, why, why do the results actually, I guess, like, saying undefeated matters, but, like, people get hung up in the comments on very, very strange things. 
Yeah, turns out that there's a lot of people out there with a lot of different motivations. Uh, I, I think Phil got comments from the the same homie who's like, "Hey, don't cut the the results in between matches." Like on Magic Online, when you finish one round of a league, like it pops up like two over in round one, one two in round two, and it like shows you that briefly before you queue into the next league. And obviously, I cut that; it's dead air. But someone was like, "Don't cut that anymore," and they were fine. I engaged with them. I was like. My channel's not really about winning or losing. It's about like learning and understanding what's happening in Magic. And they were like, "Oh, okay, that's fine, thanks." But like the the fact that I I think they said like sometimes I watch videos at night and forget what your record is when I pick it up in the morning. And it's like number one, like that's a you problem, and number two, that's not even my priority at all. So let's just not talk about that anymore. Speaking of winning and losing, I'm gonna hop into my MTG updates. I finally started doing some winning again, and it feels so good. I've been on such a cold streak that just like any amount of success recently has felt like pretty damn good. And with Modern Horizons 2, I finally figured out a configuration with the Epic Storm that's brought some success. I'm up to 40 matches at the moment, which is still a pretty small sample size, but I'm at a 78 win percentage, which is just like much, much, much higher than what I'm used to. Um, So we'll see if I can maintain this with a larger sample, but... Initial testing is like Galvanic Relay is real good. We're going to talk about that today. And AV carries some weight as well. Nice. I saw a Ragavan steal a Storm player's AV this weekend. It was pretty <laughs> messed up. They they were not able to cast it, obviously, because it's a Delver deck. They don't have five mana, but it was still like when that thing flipped off the top, the crowd went wild. I've uh, egged on one Delver player to cast my Ad Nauseam and they refused. Yeah, I mean, forcible. I think a forcible is worth five damage. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Yeah, fired in, says the storm player with natty tendrils in hand. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, wink, wink, all right. Wink. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt for for some lore bullshit for a minute. Is is that how we're supposed to pronounce the the name of that ooze? Because I'm I'm guessing it's supposed to be like Eve is is the idea, right? The, it's progenitor ooze versus like a you know mythological progenitor of humankind. So I'm guessing that A-E is probably a diphthong and is meant to be pronounced as one vowel. I don't know. Everyone I've talked to has said E-V, so I've just mimicked what I've heard. In my head, I pronounce it Ave, but I have not said it out loud. I've only heard Bryant say it out loud, and I have no context for the, the canonical correct pronunciation either way. Yeah, I'm guessing it's like Ave or Ive or something like that. I don't know. If you have a strong opinion, I will pronounce it that way, but I don't know. I've just been copying people. It's important to remember if you're navigating the uh, Temple of Doom that Jehovah starts with an I. Nothing, nothing. No Indiana Jones fans. No, no the, I got it. I mean, I got it because I know Latin. All right, but, fair. You um, know, otherwise, I would have missed that one. One quick note Wait. about AV is you can check out all those details at theepicsfirm.com right now. I updated the entire site this weekend. So everything from cyborg guide to cardboard choices, PDF deck list, it's literally all up there. Go check out theepicsfirm.com. Um, going off the, the like actually winning for a change thing, I got my first trophy in like maybe 20 or 25 leagues. Like when you're when you're playing, you know, a bunch of meme and donation deck lists all the time, you know, you're usually picking up something for the first time. And I, I had something absurd like 12 four ones since modern horizons 2 release and i've like finally got a trophy with madness and it was like okay cool on on the on the metaphorical scoreboard again that deck is good 
Uh, that deck is really good. Uh, I've played two leagues with it. I've got a third version of it in my in my queue. It's one of the broken things you can do from Modern Horizons too, and I don't mean that in like the clickbait clickbaity sort of way. I mean that in the like I just had a fucking vintage turn on turn one. Like I have above ten power in play on turn one sort of way. Yeah, that deck does a good job turning Lion's Eye Diamond into Black Lotus for real. Yeah. Yes. It's no. It's sweet. it's just better than Black Lotus. Yeah. Right. Which right. Is yeah. blasphemy to say, but like it's so true. Yeah. It's nice because when and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to pronounce this incorrectly. Is wrong. Uh, to Phil, I can't talk English words. Uh, Angie's Ravenger. When that card came out, Phil was all about it, but like it didn't really have a home, and Phil tried it, and a bunch of brews that were ultimately Phil. You're allowed to disagree here, but not that successful. And now it's oh, like no, that's that's correct. Now it's like a key part of a really good deck, and it's just like happy to see some of. You know what Phil's work has done pay off a little bit. Oh God, I was I was so hot on that card because like that card is like right there in terms of playability pre MH two. Like it it's very intriguing in like a red prison shell as a way to refuel. And the madness deck was like playable, but like definitely in that like tier three questionable territory. And now it's just like everything clicked, and this deck is is just gas. I am scared once people like optimize the colors and card choices about what that deck is going to do. Yeah, I played against that deck in like week one or week two when I recorded Bant Flash in the the Sunday Legacy Challenge, and my opponent I didn't know what my opponent was on. They mulled to five, cast Lion's Eye Diamond, and I was like, oh, or they played Once Upon a Time, revealed some thing and then cast lines eye diamond so i knew it was a madness deck and i was like oh i'll just force the ng's ravager but then they sacked their led discarded vengevine vengevine lizard lizard and i just took eight and i was like oh, okay i'll force of will the lines eye diamond in games two and three and then i did and i won but wow that was that got me good <laughs> the first time i saw it yeah um bob and i were talking and we both came to the same conclusion like if you are playing against that deck you you need to counter the led like if you have one counterspell if you have a billion counterspells it doesn't matter just stop that card yeah you have to treat it like dredge where you just force of will literally the first thing they put on the stack it doesn't matter whatever the enabler is hit it that was one of the big talking points i wanted to make today is modern horizons 2 more than any set that i can think of in history requires players to reconsider their play patterns we're going to dive on it a little bit more later but it's just something i've noticed a lot and i think it's part of the reason i've been winning more I think part, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Like, I am so used to adapting because of all the weird things that I'm doing and constantly doing that, like, I'm I'm good at evaluating new unknown positions. And, like, because I'm playing with all these, these weird decks and these new brews, like, I feel like I have an incredibly strong understanding of Legacy right now. Um, and there's, there's a lot going on. Like, Legacy of now is very different from Legacy of three weeks ago. For sure. And the change in play patterns is a great point because in the like 2019-2020 firestorm, we saw a change of play patterns as well. Like the old heuristic of like board out force of will and fair matchups. It's like, well, now fair matchups have Oko, they have Dreadhorde Arcanus, they have shit you need to force of will or you're going to lose. And like over the last two years, we had to make some change to, to old rules. And now I think we're very quickly finding new, newer rules as well. And it's really cool. Um, so before we dive into the core content, um, I just want to throw out there that I made a bunch of Thraben University, like the website upgrades recently. So 
like all those things that were on my to-do list for years like i finally checked off most of them um most notably for many of our listeners i added a brewing 101 section that is just a set of like five core brewing principles that like i want anyone who is going to submit like a donation deck to someone like me or brian to like read and just like solidify the most important things to think about when when you're doing deck building i shared that with my patreon and they did not appreciate the implication <laughs> i think it was mock indignation but they were like oh god is what's the hint here <laughs> it's like well it wouldn't hurt any of you i'm also trying something new on youtube i i opened up youtube memberships on my channel um so that people can like pay to subscribe to my channel um, and the whole reason I did that was just to give people another path to access my private Discord server that I have. Um, so now they can do that via Twitch Prime or YouTube memberships. I have no idea if like the YouTube memberships are going to catch on or anything, but it's something I'm testing out. That's cool. I hadn't considered that as a path into the Discord. The only path into my Discord now is Patreon, but I mean, I'm happy to get more people in there. So I didn't turn on YouTube memberships because I didn't want to offer any additional exclusive content for people who pay. But Discord's good enough. Get in there. I'll probably do that as soon as we're done recording. All right. A uh, quick note before we start today's uh, topic. We are going to announce the winner of the survey from last week's thing next episode. So you still have another week or so to fill out that survey to guess who was in the first 50 intros of our podcast. Uh, details will post again on this one. So if you check out the description for this episode, that survey link will be in there. It's free to do. Fill it out. And we're giving $200 to a a charity of your choice. Just fill it out. It's free. Do it. And uh, fair warning, there aren't that many applicants right now because it's uh, it's kind of a Herculean task to do. Um, So you actually have a pretty reasonable shot at winning if you're, uh, you know, well versed in the magic community and you can recognize voice as well. You can't be worse than Mike Noble submissions. They were literally just all Blink-182 song names. So you can do better than Mike Noble. I believe in you. Wait, did you guys have Mark Hopus do the intro before I joined the cast? Because that would really fuck me up if I learned that right now. <laughs> <laughs> After Phil vetoed MC Bat Commander, Bryant and I were ready to pay to c- pay the cameo cost to get him to do it. And Phil was like, we have better uses for our money. <laughs> so, fine, Phil. But uh, yeah, Blink-182 is great. All right, Brian, do you have any MTG updates before we get into things? Uh, I'm sort of, uh, I think we're all feeling the regularization of Modern Horizons 2. Like the hype is bor- is burnt off. And still, like the whole point of this episode that we're going to talk about for the next hour and a half is that the ramifications and fallout of all these new cards are still affecting the format. We're still getting new decks. We're still learning new play patterns, all that that we are going to talk about. But the like automatic... 10, 15, 20,000 views if your thumbnail has Ursa Saga in it, it's done. So we're back down to like normal performance levels on YouTube after anything you shit out if it had Modern Horizons 2 in the title would just go ape. And my two highest all-time videos now are the Asmaran food deck that I released like week one and the Ursa Saga affinity deck that I also released week one that beat out like lotus jeweled lotus combo and to fairy vacation and all of my classic bangers and now i'm back down to just like pretty happy with breaking five thousand on a video so the 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 breaks have been hit i didn't realize that you were one of the first people to do the food deck that deck is scary good 
Uh, I recorded a video recently where I got paired against it, and its grinding power is just insane. Yeah, it's out of control with the grinding power, and I had like a day three list. Like, I, obviously, I didn't invent the deck. I'm not that smart, but I just saw it on Twitter and copied it and fired it in, and it was a really. It had like one life from the loam, some Seder Wayfinders. I don't think any of those cards are still in the deck. It had loam, but no cycle lands. And like cycle lands are obviously great with both Asmaran and loam. And it, we they hadn't figured out Finale of Devastation as just two mana, search your deck or graveyard for Asmaran and put it into play. Like all of these things hadn't happened yet. And I still just easily 5 would my league. And the deck's only gotten a lot better. That deck is scary. You're right about that. Yeah, like I was probably the first person to release a video on affinity and, and that video just went to the moon and like i think i was probably one of the first to release with like a mod modern shardless bug too and it was just the same thing like yep. the the excitement and hype around this set uh is it's just absurd yeah even random like weird stuff like i released uh mono white uba stacks with urza saga in it that video has like seventeen thousand views right now and it's a week and a half old I don't put up numbers like that. That That's that's good. That's real good. Uh, like, I'm happy with 5k on a video. I consider that a success. And that's just like 17 and climbing. So it's starting to slow down, though. Feeling it. Back to the normal grind. And in much more exciting news, I played my first Paper Magic the Gathering tournament this past weekend. It was a local legacy event for a Tundra for first place. I got second place. I think it was like 22, 24 people. It was a five rounder. Uh, I went undefeated through the Swiss and then lost in the finals to Urza Echo featuring Urza Saga. And it was the Saga that I lost to, ultimately. that That's the thing that broke the parody in a very quick and disgusting way to crack open the game that I had otherwise control of. And yeah, that card's good. But it was great to be back playing Paper Magic. It's a little weird, in my opinion. Uh, like, there's this awkward, like, am I allowed to cut your deck? Do you want to cut mine? Should we not touch each other's things? Um, that sort of stuff. At first, I was like, do not touch my deck. And then I noticed everyone else felt doing it, and I felt like I was being inconsiderate by not letting people like cut or shuffle my deck because they think that I might be cheating, and I started second-guessing that. So I started letting people like cut and shuffle my decks. I don't know. Maybe I keep too early. I, I don't know. Like To me, like I figure the... You, you've already opened the floodgates like if you're in a game store with like 26 other people between the competitors and the staff and anyone coming and going you're sitting across from someone breathing on each other for 40 minutes uh, multiple times in a row like shuffling the deck isn't the thing that's going to get you COVID at this point and uh, at that point i'm just like we've all made the decision to be here we all accept the risks uh if you're not vaccinated by now at least where i live it's uh it's either a choice or you literally can't be like either you're immunocompromised or you're just opting out and like everyone who wants a vaccine can get one so uh that's where that's where i'm at with that at first like my first round opponent i was like i, I made this like weird introduction where i was like it's nice to meet you and i respect you as a person but i'm not going to shake your hand now or at the end of the match like just understand and they were like oh yeah no problem but then we had this crazy match that ended with like 90 seconds left on the clock and he gave me this huge like oh great game handshake like threw his hand across the table and i just took it as a reflex and i was like yeah whatever here we are i'm just gonna wash my hands between rounds which i've been doing my entire life at magic tournaments anyway and if you're not you should do that so whatever it, it felt like pretty normal and 
maybe that's reckless. I don't know what this uh, Delta variant creeping in is or like if vaccination is going to catch that or they were going to be back in quarantine in six months. I don't know. But right now I'm doing I'm following the the official recommendations from the CDC and I would like to live my life while I can. All right. So let, let's hop into the thick of it. Uh, did we thank our donor already, by the way? We did not. All right. Uh, thank you very much to Matt Hackbert for donating to support the podcast and keeping our editor at Force of Phil able to buy Sweet Modern Horizons 2 cards. And soon, Dungeons and Dragons cards. This is where, if we had a sponsor, we could say, uh, like, oh, thank you to insert sponsor here. This is where you should buy your Modern Horizons 2 cards, etc. Uh, but we don't have one of those, so... Uh, buy your cards from your preferred local game store instead. And if you, you, yes, you, listener, run a TCG marketplace or a game store of any kind, please reach out. We'd love to set up some sponsorship. <laughs> always, always hustling, the three of us. Yep, born to hustle, rise and grind. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. All right, so um, I'm going to start off by kind of uh, explaining the the impetus or the spark for this episode. So Modern Horizons 2 has been one of the highest impact sets uh, for Eternal formats, which is really saying something considering like the fire design that we've been um, experiencing over the past few years. And Modern Horizons 2 is just changing formats left and right. And what that means for us as Eternal players is that many of the deck building norms and heuristics that we're used to using have been thrown out the window. You know, modern has been completely upended. Vintage decks are, you know, trying to incorporate Urza Saga in particular, and they're trying to figure out how to do that. And legacy decks, like, uh, (laughs) there's so many things have changed, and there's entirely new archetypes that, you know, barely existed as of a couple of weeks ago. And so what we want to do today is highlight a few decks from Legacy Modern and Vintage and talk about exactly how the decks changed and why the decks changed. And something that Bryant in particular talks about a lot is the importance of evaluating cards in new potential homes rather than just trying to like cleanly slot them into something exists because Modern Horizons 2 has made just so many new archetypes or just completely changed how decks needed to be built. Yeah, one thing, uh, your mention of fire design, I feel like the Modern Horizons 2 hits this sweet spot because it's not just a bunch of busto, like obviously insane on rate fire design. Like there's no Uro, there's no Oko, there's no Omnath, which is not a legacy card, but like the printing of that card is among the most egregious design things that happened in the last several years. Uh, but like these are like Urza's Saga it costs you a land. You have to put zero and one mana artifacts in your deck. You have to either ramp or be able to survive to the mid game to make constructs. Like your your land dies uh, to wasteland before it can produce or mana. Or disenchant your land dies to yeah. disenchant effects. Yeah, like all of there's some cool stuff going on there. And like Ragavan, uh, we've talked a lot about Bane Drifters, like cards that are both self-contained win conditions and gain card advantage over time. I think Ragavan is much closer to a Maul Drifter than a Bane Slayer Angel on that scale. Like, he's he's got a touch of both. He does have power and toughness, but so does Maul Drifter. I mean, a one drop compared to a five drop is obviously a totally different universe. But, like, as far as I'm literally going to die very quickly to this thing, like, no, you might get buried by cards quickly, but this thing will eat a lightning bolt eventually. So they they pulled that one into the correct direction, though I think it is 
the most pushed of them. But like Murktide Regent, we've had Tombstalker for over a decade now, and they, they made it blue, which is might be a better color for it, but we're familiar with that, and it's not horrific. Like I, I even endurance, like that's that's just like a three four with flash. It's got other words on it, but that that's not gonna win the game by itself unless your opponent is up to no good. Then it's a three four with flash. So uh, the incentives that this set gives to play its best cards, I think, are in mostly the right place. I think this is the best designed magic set that I've ever played. Just full stop. I I love everything about the cards in this set. I've played. I don't know, 30 different archetypes, maybe more since Modern Horizon was released. And they've all pretty much all taken advantage of new cards in some new and different way. And and that's just been awesome. I, I love this set. To be the negative Nancy, uh, because I have to dislike something. Uh, I'm sure our listeners love hearing me uh, bemoan. But I feel like there's almost too many different card faces. Like, yes, the cards themselves are terrific, and I agree. But with etched foil and retro and then sketch and everything else it just feels like there's too much going on and then last night i was putting cards into the epics from shop and i was looking at strike it rich and i was adding strike it rich in and i'm like according to the three sites that i've looked at there's no retro for strike it rich did they just not do retro for some cards it is it select cards only why are they why would you do some and not all like does that apply to sketch because i saw sketches of almost all cards like what are the rules here it's just incredibly confusing yeah i agree with that the honestly the retro frame like we talked about this in the times power remastered episode like i went hard on pre-orders on that i went hard on pre-orders of this too like i i had my uh my set of old border fetches the day I could, basically. Like, they were pre-ordered and sent to me the day the set released. Like, I am in. I am a, a hound for that sort of nostalgia. But it's going to stop being special very soon. And I think that the uh, the the various different frames, the fact that we have, like, full arts, alt art, alt art, full arts, sketches, old retros, retro etched, uh, retro foil, which are different things, like, I, that is a mess to me, and I kind of hate it. Uh, I actually hate the the sketch cards entirely. Like I think those just look like unfinished magic cards because that's what they are. But yeah, I, I usually like the I usually like non foil neat printings of things. Like if there is an alternate art or a full art frame, like I usually appreciate that sort of thing. But I looked at those sketch arts and I'm like, this is just ugly. <laughs> I don't want it. This is me being a theory crafter here, but part of me wonders if it was a favor to the artists because. I'm in a couple of the art collector groups and those artists are all selling their original sketches and they're selling them for a boatload more than they would have previously because like they'd sell sketches before for six to $800. These sketches are now going for four grand. Um, and that's right. not even the finished one that they also sell. So they're making bank. Yeah. I mean, that's a weird way to throw a bone to the artists. Like, don't they get paid for making the art in the first place? Like I, I feel, I, I don't know. I think, I might have my tinfoil hat on this one. Like, I mean, I'm I in that group too, and like, I I wish the artist the best, and I think it's awesome they get a second payday by selling the original art after Wizards already pays them to make the art. Like, that's awesome for them, and all of that. So, good for them. But I, I don't know. Uh, that one was a flop for me. Yeah. When I when I start seeing people from like Star City Games, like not understanding all the different printings of cards, that's when I think like, all right, we need to we need to pull the brakes on the complexity lever here. That's it's a lot. 
And the the secret alternate printings too, which happened in Strixhaven and in Modern Horizons 2, where whether you open things out of a like the same foil out of a collector booster will have a different foil process than the same foil out of a set booster. And despite being the same card, like one just has a higher quality foiling or one Pringles and one doesn't. And I'm not talking about the difference between foil and etch foil, like literally just foil this card, foil this card out of two different packs that came from two different factories. You have two different cards. And the retro foil fetch lands in Modern Horizons 2, some of them have the traditional retro foil where the border is foil and then you get the shooting star and others just have a sheet of foil over the whole thing like it's a uh, from the vaults card and those are both retro foil verdant catacombs and there's no difference between them according to wizards of the coast but there is obviously a big one so uh, i hope that i think that five years from now we're going to look at this period as like yeah that's when magic went full pokemon and either we're going to have a million new people to play with at that point, or we're going to be like, that didn't work. I'm glad they stopped doing it. And I don't think there's going to be anything in between. All right. Were we talking about magic cards, like theory, like actually a uh, playing of magic? Merktide Regent or something. Um, All right. Uh, I'm oh, done wait, with that. It wasn't this the section that we were supposed to go on and talk about how the, the like MMO got canceled today. <laughs> Oh, jeez. And, and then we, like, really put on the tinfoil hat, and we go, like, all right, so all the money that's been disappearing, right? So, like, it had to go towards this, because this flopped, and blah, 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 blah. Sometimes I hate Magic Twitter, because, like, they were all dumping on the MMO, like, not performing well, but, like, as a company, don't you want them expanding and trying to, like, go into new things? Like, yes, this one might have failed, but, like, it's okay to try something and then go, like, hey, this didn't work out. Let's stop it. But instead, people are just like, ah, wizards, idiots. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what it's like to design a, an MMO RPG. Like, that's just not something I've ever done. I've never even played one. Like, I've, ne- I've never even logged into WoW because I knew if I did, I'd never log out. So that that was a self restraint choice. I know my personality, and I would I'd be gone. But like I, I remember on day one, like uh, day nine was one of the sponsored streamers. Like they just paid him to stream this magic thing for eight hours, and I'm sure the paycheck was thick, whatever it was, knowing what I do about the industry. But he just spent the entire time like, I don't understand this, and it's bad. I'm not investing in this. I don't care about this character, even though I just made it. Like, what is the story? I don't care about it at all. And he he was more eloquent, but only slightly. Like, he had specific reasons to back up why it wasn't hitting for him. And it was just a really rough debut to this thing. And I honestly forgot it existed until people started talking about how it was canceled today. All right. So getting into the, the meat of the episode, then, um, we're going to start with Modern. And we're going to talk about the current um, blue-red aggro deck um, that is emerging, whatever you want to call it. Wait, which one, Phil? Yeah. Okay, so that's that's why we need to talk about it. So Modern, as of three weeks ago, there's this Is It Blitz deck, which is a highly aggressive prowess-based deck that is is all over the place. Um, I maybe don't want to call it dominant. That might be a, a, a bit too far, but it, it's, it's, it's very popular. It is a great deck. The lists were tune, tuned and tight, and... You know, people were thinking about like, hey, can we put some of these new cards into this existing deck? And what actually end up happening instead is that the archetype ends up totally splintering and becoming like two different decks. 
And the one that's emerging now is trying to play on an entirely new axis rather than just slot new cards into an existing deck. The new version is trying to really focus on playing with the graveyard and delirium. Yeah, and this is this this splinter goes back to Ragavan. And I listened to uh something Patrick Sullivan was on, whether it was the Resleepables podcast or his own uh uh I'm brain farting. What's his his YouTube channel called? I don't know. I'll remember it. But uh he recurring insight. Uh one of these things that Patrick Sullivan is on and he is peripherally part of play design he doesn't work in seattle with the watsi crew but he's a remote consultant so he is involved in the process and ragavan was him like he put the stats on that thing he kept it pushed the whole way through development and he is really happy with where it landed when it went out the door and his position on that is that this is not another red one drop that you just shove into your burn deck like, if you compare the rate of return on, like, Goblin Guide, if you, how many, how often do you win a game where Goblin Guide connects twice? Probably most of the time. And that one has haste. How many times do you win a game where Ragavan com- connects twice? Probably also most of the time, but this one doesn't have haste. So, in, like, a burn shell, you don't just shove Ragavan in. So the obvious place where you'd want a red one drop doesn't want this red one drop. And that's where we get this splinter of the Is It Blitz deck was playing Monastery, Swift Spear, Soulscar Mage, uh, Stormwing Entity, like Prowess Threats, uh, some builds of more like Burn-centric, like Mono Red ones. Uh, They might have had Goblin Guide in there as well. And Ragavan just doesn't fit that plan. Like two mana for a 2-1 haste is below rate on every single card in that deck. One mana for a 2-1 not haste is also below rate on every single card in that deck. But Ragavan's obviously powerful, so what are we going to do with this guy? And the comparison is Shadow Mage Infiltrator to Psychotog. Like, everyone is talking about Ragavan, which is the Shadow Mage Infiltrator of the set, but hiding under this splashy rare at Uncommon is the Psychotog, which is Dragon's Rage Channeler. And Dragon's Rage Channeler is actually format-defining, and this one goes in both Prowess and the the blue red delver deck and this one fuels the graveyard fuels card selection makes quick a, a quick murktide region actually makes delver a playable archetype in modern which has never really existed before people have done it but the modern card pool just didn't support it the way that legacy does and now that you have eight of them plus ragavan plus murktide region at the top like this deck is a, a murder machine and it the overlap with is it blitz is very small it's like lava dart lightning bolt and i think that's about it like maybe mistress bobble and some builds of blitz but really these are just totally different decks even though you would expect them to be very similar but they are not at all and it comes down to what ragavan actually does for a red deck which is not get in there quick for damage so the the new emerging blue-red aggro deck, blue-red delver, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, is playing Thought Scours and Bobbles and Dragon Rage Channelers to all fuel the graveyard. And conceptually, I, I think a lot of people in Legacy are viewing Dragon Rage Channeler as this is a card that lets me select and this is a card that helps itself find Delirium. 
and in modern Dragon Rage channeler, channeler is usually, haha, cards go burr into the graveyard. Like, you don't care what it is, it is hitting the graveyard in most circumstances so that you can power out your Merktide regions as quickly as possible. Now, there's some exceptions yeah, to that. Yeah, it's just Stitcher Supplier. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. That is that is exactly the sort of thing. Yeah, it's just Stitcher Supplier that attacks for three later on. That's all it is in modern. It's weird. I've gone to three locals now with Modern Horizons 2 being legal, and everything I've heard from people playing Blue Red Delver and Legacy is Dragon Rage Channeler isn't that good, never has Delirium. In our first episode, we talked about how you give it Delirium. You play things like Mishra's Bobble or even you know, Tarfire, those sort of things. No one's playing those effects. I think that the Legacy metagame is a little bit slow to adapt here. You guys are welcome to disagree with me. But I think if they really wanted to abuse Dragon Rage Channeler, they'd be playing something to give it Delirium that isn't just land creature instant sorcery. My modern opponents almost 100% of the time have Delirium on turn two when they are playing this deck. Uh, it is it is ridiculous how fast they get they get delirium because they have like such a good mix of of card types there and the ability to fuel it. Yeah, this is that also came up in our preview episode where we talked about Dragon's Rage Channeler, and I said look to modern for inspiration to get delirium because the old Jund Shadow decks traverse the Olvenwald was a modern staple for a period of time. That card needs delirium, like the. You know, uh, Fetchland, Thoughtseize, Mishra's Bobble, Cycle Street Wraith, Delirium, go. <laughs> like, turn one Delirium. That's the thing that Modern is well-equipped to do and has been for quite some time. And the fact that it's in this shell that can also play actual factual counterspell is really cool to me. What's really cool to me is the card Unholy Heat. Um, this card is oh, yeah. sick. Love it. So this is a, uh, a shock that can hit creatures or planeswalkers unless you have Delirium in which case it becomes 5 damage, and 5 damage on a creature or planeswalker for 1 red is just a super disgusting rate. At in- Isn't it? It's 6, six. damage. Oh, fuck, it's 6? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you gotta... That's what's unholy about it, the number of the beast. <laughs> Strong. <laughs> yeah, um, so this, this card has started to even pop up a, a little bit in Legacy as, as well. Um, the, the big downside is that it doesn't go to the face so it's not a finisher but it gets to kill things with a big butt like say an endurance but if we compare it to magmatic sinkhole that was a card that dealt five to a creature or a planeswalker and got better if you had cards in your graveyard this is the same but it's not unplayable if there's a rest in peace in play like there is a a better modality to it like i'd rather pay one for shock than pay six sometimes for five you know like i think this card is just almost strictly better than magmatic sinkhole obviously strictly is a dangerous word to say and it's never true like what if they have tarmogoyf you can change the size of it like blah okay get out of here but as far as cards i want to put in my deck i would put unholy heat over magmatic sinkhole all the time and that is a card with an established history in delver decks magmatic sinkhole is one of those cards i was super high on and then it just never lived up to the potential i think uh, Ren and six being larger than five was a big part of it. Um, and then, you know, Brian mentioned rest in peace. Graveyard hate is just like super popular in the decks that would want to, that it would want to beat. So if you're playing a deck that's playing magmatic sinkhole, graveyard hates probably good against you. So it had that downside as well. So while we're talking about the graveyards, um, we should also probably mention Merktide Regent here. Um, 
that card is a really good finisher because it dodges a bunch of common removal. It gets bigger than Lightning Bolt, it's really hard to kill with something like a Prismatic Ending, it dodges Abrupt Decay, and... Really hard, Phil. Where do you get seven mana? Seven colors of mana? Prismatic Ending cannot kill that card. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you didn't sell it hard enough. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was playing a bug league, like bug midrange for the channel uh, last week, and... I, in my deck tech, I was like, Bug is solid in a Delver meta because Bug historically lines up well against Delver. We have Abrupt Decays, we have Tarmogoyfs, like we get bigger than them, we have Uncounterable Removal. And then they cast Merc Tide Regent. And let me tell you what a Bug deck cannot answer in any way. I <laughs> like, will Fatal it's a Merc Tide Oh region. no, no Fatal Push, no Abrupt Decay, <laughs> shit. Trophy would technically yeah. do, but people don't play that card anymore. Right. Like that was my feedback in the league. Like I think the league I played had a three one split of Decay to Trophy and I was like, we just need like three one the other way if Mark Tide Regent's gonna be in the format. Like this is a, a no fly zone. So it's interesting. The way that the metagame has shifted recently, and this is a I think I mentioned it last episode, or maybe I was going to say it and I just didn't end up doing it. Hydroblast is a card that's never been more popular or more playable in Legacy until now. But pyroblast is the card you need for murktide uh so if you're a blue red deck i can honestly see playing both blasts and it's not usually the case like typically you play one or the other depending on the metagame i think now is actually a reasonable time to play both yeah i have been putting blue blast in all of my blue deck sideboards and i love it like that's usually that's been a pet card of mine for years of just like if I feel the read of the metagame where I get to play a blue blast, I get to feel super smart because that card is like one that people don't really think about, even though it's twin is ubiquitous. But yeah, it's just a card now. Like you should probably have it in your blue deck sideboard. It, it's, it's also good, good against red prison, which people are continuing to jam for some reason, even though like chalice gets worse with every set that's printed. Fury. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah, Fury is so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's not turn this into the Red Prison episode. I don't, I don't know that it actually <laughs> is that good. Unlike the the first weekend that Modern Horizons came to, somebody posted a screenshot. It was a, uh, it was like three noble hierarchs and a Thalia in play on the other side of the board, and they had Fury Red card in their hand, and then they posted the Danny DeVito. So anyway, I started blasting. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That that one got a retweet from yeah, me. Yeah, that's that was great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also recently learned that the German card name of Fury is what? Like W-U-T, what? I'm sure it's pronounced like Wut in German or something. Like German listeners, help us out here. But it, the it's W-U-T, which is great for our American people who have spent any time on the internet. All right, so why don't we shift a little bit into legacy examples? We've talked about modern and uh, let's let's hit home. Let's talk about bank control. Brian, this is your area of expertise. Drop some knowledge. It's endurance love letter time for the third episode in a row. Yeah, for the third episode in a row, we're going to just uh, stroke endurance's shiny back. Is it furry of shiny? I think it would be shiny, right? I don't know. I, I just imagine me standing next to endurance and stroking its its hide, however that feels in my hand. And I imagine it feeling just like shiny and smooth. But anyway, like, like a dry dolphin, I think, is how endurance would feel. <laughs> right? Please go to the go to Twitter and tell me what endurance feels like in your hand. But I'm thinking a dry dolphin. But okay, so my big dry dolphin buddy, 
we we've talked about the implications of this card and like it's still insane that doomsday and death and taxes both have to worry about the same main deck card it's just like the range that this thing hits is out of control and we don't need to cover that again but i don't think we hit hard enough how much it changes the game against the people who are playing fair like we talked about how it uh, it's just another force for dredge it's another uh it bombs bridges like etc we we know that but just like maverick just like with their thalia and knight of the reliquary and just cannot attack into three mana like doesn't matter how big the knight is because endurance is going to bomb it and just eat it uh this past weekend when i played that live event my death and taxes opponent in round one took this like three or four turn line to maneuver a sword of fire and ice onto a sanctum prelate and i just blocked it with endurance and it died i I had one in play already when they attacked. I flashed in a second double block and like your thing's gone. Normally sort of fire and ice is like, oh no, I'm in trouble now. And like with prelate on one, like I can't plow it. Like that's normally kind of a checkmate or at least the abyss situation. But I just easily blocked it. And just this non-blue blocking fat animal just eats anything that a green deck is actually putting into play. Like really insane how this is changing the play patterns both with and against anyone with uh, double green speaking of sanctum prelate that was a card that in preview season they were being bought out like tcg player was bought out at one point it was like a 30 dollar card even before it was spoiled and then people started buying it out because they were expecting to be so dominant and modern i think i've seen it once in all of the leagues i've played like that was a card that was just like the second coming of the greatest thing ever and it's just not seeing play because the blue red decks are so good yeah sanctum prelate is a three drop in a format that revolved the critical turn is turn four so good luck and like omnath locus of creation is a a a staple in that format monastery mentor is a staple in that format like whatever (laughs) whoever i i hope whoever bought those out just chokes on their their fistfuls of negative money but yeah endurance was the three drop we were looking for i i can't stress enough how stressful it is to be playing against like a bant deck or a knight that you know a, not a knight a deck that you know has in, has endurance in it and you're playing small creatures because you're put into these situations where like i need to win the game by attacking however my opponent has cards in hand in open mana if they have endurance i eat a savage blowout and if i don't attack i give my opponent you know half a time walk worth of value uh, it has put my opponents into and myself into some really weird situations in leagues where I've been playing, where like my opponent sat there, thought for 30 seconds, turned the creature sideways, and then I cast Endurance, and then in chat they're like, shit, I really hoped you didn't have that. Yeah, it's kind of like playing around days, or playing around anything really, like playing around a pump spell in Limited. Like Once you decide to play around it, you have to keep playing around it unless some significant information changes. Like, they they don't become less likely to have it the second turn you pass, or the third. They become more likely to have it that second and third turn. So if you're if you play or if you skip one attack to avoid an endurance, you have to skip the rest of them until you have another plan to get through it, or you have to just decide like, you know, fuck it or whatever. And I'm I'm not going to win a game where I keep passing without attacking either. And but it becomes more likely over time that they have the card you're playing around, not less. So that's 
That's just a, a rule of magic that a lot of people don't understand. Also, from the flip side, if you're going to bluff having endurance, you need to play like you have endurance. Like, don't leave up three mana on a turn and hope like, oh, I hope they play around endurance and then just tap out on the next turn. Because then they're going to be like, oh, they didn't have endurance. That was a bluff. And now they're not going to respect it anymore. But if you just leave up that three forever and make weird things like like cast Abundant Harvest, reveal a castable cantrip, but don't cast it to leave three mana up, they're going to know you have endurance like because you're selling it. Like indicate cost of leaving up that three mana and do it turn after turn. And they will really, really respect that you have the endurance and like bluffs and like playing around something and bluffing something work on the same axis in that way so just keep that in mind as well and it gets even worse once they have things like ice fang Kowaddle in the deck too and then it's just like oh no combat is unsafe yeah somebody was asking me about the threats in bant flash like do we cut hall breacher entirely just play four endurance and i had to like talk to them that it's not just about having many things with flash it's about having different things with flash so like if you skip your combat to play around endurance and decide to develop with a cantrip instead and i get you with hall breacher where your combat would run right through it like that's part of the game too if you if they always know they have to play around only endurance that that becomes easier than i have coaddle i have endurance i have hall breacher and Speaking of the diversity of flash threats, I played against Infect in this event this past weekend, and when I got paired against them, I was like, oh man, Infect's tough for blue decks, because that has historically been true, but Ice Fang Coatl, Endurance, Shark Typhoon, Prismatic Ending, it is not hard for the Bant deck right now. That's actually kind of a layup, which was a pleasant surprise, but made perfect sense once I thought about it. So why don't we pivot into talking about Prismatic Ending? Um this was a card that i think has like once people saw it in play they were all like oh this is so much better than it looks it's fine that it's a sorcery like the flexibility is just impeccable if it wasn't a sorcery i think i'd be upset that card is so good yes for me and i know that we talked about uh changing play patterns it is part of the reason i am no running no longer running carpet of flowers uh a card that was once good against delver and control uh, being Carpet of Flowers is now good versus maybe just Delver, and that's a maybe. With Ragavan making treasures, I'm not even sure if it's good there anymore. Um, but it, from my perspective, it's forced me to... I'm not running out defense grids on turn two if I don't need to anymore. I'm not jamming Wishclaw Talismans because Prismatic Ending is so strong that I can't afford to turn on this card. Like, it's like if all of a sudden Blue White Control decks gained a more playable Abrupt Decay. So... I played a league with uh, Applejacks today. Um, that is green, red, orcish, lumberjack, ramp. And uh, normally, if you stick something like a Clothis against a control deck, it's like, oh, this is here forever. And now it's just like, oh, it's gone. Like, my opponent did not even bat an eye at this, like, sticky, borderline, unremovable threat previously. Yeah, all the fair blue players want to increase their their meta share and their win rate is flexible answers like the games that you lose are where your deck doesn't line up right or at least not line up fast enough like when you keep a hand with two swords of plowshares and your opponent turns out to be on storm or you keep 
two forces and they're on Delver. Like those are the games you just lose because you lose too much time cantripping, trying to fix your hand and you get run over. But just having a card that exiles Wishclaw Talisman or Delver of Secrets is just so messed up. And I actually think that based on your expected metagame, I can see a world where we want the first four prismatic endings before we want all four swords to plowshares. Like that's how insane that this card is. I think that specifically the existence of Ragavan right now being a dash threat, we still want the plows for now, but I, I'm just saying like worlds could exist where you, you want the endings first and then you start filling in the flex removal slots with sorts of freaking plowshares. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Like the ability for your thing to answer, a, you know, a Delver or a Ragavan or a Dragon Rage channel or a Mother Runes on turn one and then later on be able to like cash in and deal with, you know, your your Teferis, your Narsets, your Sylvan Libraries, your Choke. Like, I played Choke today in a league, and it was just like, oh, I need I need to Thought-seize them before I try to cast this Choke, because if they just have Prismatic Ending, I accomplish nothing. So if I was someone that was trying to play Devil's Advocate, I'd say, well, why don't you go higher up on the curve? If they're going to play Prismatic Ending, play three and four drops. Well, the Bant deck is three colors. It could, if it wanted to, splash an additional fourth color, uh, not that they're doing that, but they could. But do you really expect your late game to be better than the Bant Flash control decks? Like, you have to go much larger. Think back to that uh, mid-range level-up episode we did, where if, <coughs> excuse me, where if you're on Delver, you want to be on mid-range and et cetera, and you're going up the ladder mid-range wars. So how big do you have to go to beat Bant control? I think you need to be, like, Claude Post level big. Because Prismatic Ending will get you otherwise. I'm not saying that it's like too good or anything, but I'm just saying you have to go really high up on the curve to get past Prismatic Ending. I lost a four drop today to Prismatic Ending. Yeah, so I, I think four is the number where it starts to get dicey, but your four has to carry the game on its own. Like, you can't just play like, you know, Thrun the Last Troll or some garbage. Like, it has to be like Urza or Karn. Like, those are four drops that I'm actually like, uh-oh, against. Um, and... To the, the point of easily splashing into a bigger prismatic ending, I have a Shark Still update coming out, which I always try to keep blue-white, and I put one Volcanic Island in the list, not for sideboard red cards. There are not red blasts. It is a blue-white deck. It's just there to kick an extra color onto prismatic ending if necessary, and it was worth it. Like just it, that, I built my deck to play around Wasteland, but I exposed myself to Wasteland a little bit just to put an extra tick onto the ending and it was so so worth it and throwing out another really sweet interaction you remember like urborg and yavamaya that let you uh, tap your lands for other colors that makes prismatic ending even bigger and that showed up in one of my leagues where i played a yavamaya and i said like yeah i don't think there's any downside to playing this and then half a turn cycle later i was like oh my god what have i done by playing this since Phil mentioned it, uh, going back to adjusting the play patterns, I had someone on Black Green Depths play Yavimaya and then literally seconds later cast Thoughtseize. I have never windmill slammed a Veil of Summer faster in my life going like, thank you. Uh, so keep that in mind. Like You do have to make adjustments, like maybe giving your opponent the green mana for Veil of Summer wasn't the right move there. But that's something you just have to take a split second to think about. Like, there's all these new cards and people aren't really thinking about the ramifications of how they work yet. Yeah, There's a video where I win a game because my opponent, I, they turned one of my lands that couldn't tap for mana into a land that tapped for mana. And that gave me the, the one last mana I needed to kill them. Yeah, even though they are 
basically the same card, Erborg and Yavamaya. I feel like I've won a lot more games because Yavamaya turned like my fetch land into a forest or whatever than I ever won because I could tap a fetch land for black. Like, I don't know if green is just a more useful color than black or if I just happen to be in green anyway. And like on average, that biases my personal opinion. But I just feel like I've gotten more opponent Yavamaya blowouts than I ever got opponent Urborg yeah. blowouts. Oh, me too. <laughs> Brian, you're the champion of this. You talk about... Uh... I forget the writer from Star City that complained for a decade that green wasn't good enough in Commander. Benny Smith. Benny Smith. Thank you, Benny. And what happened is Wizards started with Termogwife, and then they've gone all the way up to Endurance of these just busted green cards over the course of the last decade. Back when uh, Yawgmoth was printed, black was probably the second best color in Magic. I don't even know if black is three anymore. There's a there's a reasonable chance that it's like fourth. Blue, green, question mark, question mark, white is the order. Yeah, that's so some commentary on that. I have have two things. One, I noticed when I was recently building like an EDH deck or something, and I was looking for gold cards in my wedge, just like flipping through my legacy playables. Most legacy playable gold cards are black and then something else. I don't have a list in front of me, but go ahead, flip through your your binder, your playables binder, however you keep them. uh, Look through deck lists. A lot of the historically legacy playable gold cards are black among whatever else they are. So black is really good at being a splash color. The other thing I was going to say, I'm forgetting right now. So somebody talk and I'll come back with it. All right. Let's talk about Abundant Harvest. That's a card we have in the notes here. That is a card that I'm so high on that I bought 12 Japanese foils because I just think that this is a card that is going to eventually be a staple in Legacy, much like Ponder. Uh, It is green, so it relies on green being good for another decade probably. But this is the first time in history we're seeing control decks with Delver number of lands. They're running 18, 19 lands, but they're just like heavy, stocky control decks. And I think part of this is control decks, the curve is getting lower and lower. We're seeing control decks without Terminus now. They're not trying to hardcast Terminus. Sometimes they're not even playing Jace the Mind Sculptor. They're like hitting Endurance, hitting Uro, and then going to sleep. So they don't need to hit seven, eight lands anymore. They're good playing the game on four or five. Yeah, so many of the creatures also cantrip now that you play. Like your your Uro cantrips, your Icefang Quaddles cantrip. It's a fairy, Narset. Not creatures, but they cantrip. I was talking to our editor, Phil Blackman, who is a, a Miracles player at heart, and how Phil loves playing with, you know, the predicts, the AKs, but now those effects just come tacked onto everything. So, like, the true control deck we were talking about doesn't really exist anymore, like Brian would argue that it does, but it's changed. Even since 2015, I guess 2017, because that's when the top banning happened, but over the last four years, we've seen it shift pretty dramatically for 20 years blue white control is just this lango duck and over the last four years it's just redefined itself that went into easily early 2019 it wasn't until war of the spark and narset that that things really changed there like i remember grix's control like 2018 was like the year of grix's control and legacy and what miracles did to adjust was ak because that can recoup a him to tarak and in fact make him to tarak a liability in some situations and we were playing accumulated knowledge right up until basically Narset was printed and, and then the rules changed. But yeah, that was very recent that that was not what a control decks needed to do anymore. But I've been on team and the game even then. Like I had accumulated knowledge and monastery mentor in my blue white decks because like once you buy that breathing room 
I want to make you dead so you don't dig out of it rather than just, you know, accumulate up to seven cards in hand and sit there until my one Jace can carry or play one and treat the angels as an actual win con. I've never been in on that sort of deck building, even when it was putting up results, even when other people were doing fine with it. Never my style. And it seems like card design has caught up with how I want to play control decks, which is actually just like mid-range decks that can play on the opponent's turn a lot of the time. Though I do think Abundant Harvest might be a trap. I think that these 19 land control decks with three Abundant Harvest, I found in my play patterns that I don't want to be spending the early turns using my cantrip to find the missing land. And that exacerbates the problem of even if you're playing a bunch of basics, sometimes you're going to draw the non-basic when you don't have a choice and you have to play it. And that makes Wasteland even worse. Like Wasteland's going to be on when you eventually draw that non-basic because you have so few targets and only playing 19 lands. Like if you fetch basic forest and then harvest for a land, that land happens to be Tundra, Wasteland, you're playing on basic forest now. Good luck. And you don't have that many lands to draw into. My current list of Bant has 20 lands and one Abundant Harvest, because I'd rather just naturally hit my land drops and then have some selection in there. Also, uh, Chalice of the Void. We talked about Prismatic Ending making that card worse. Teferi's been making that card worse. A lot of things make Chalice of the Void worse. But if you do play against a Chalice deck and you're missing land drops because your lands are Abundant Harvest, you still can't cast that card. And I think that there is deck building cost, and I'm not sure how long these 19 land three harvest decks are going to last. I think that 20 is a safer number, but again, we know that I like to build my mana bases safer than the average legacy player. So I know that we're in the bank control section and we'll eventually get to some other decks, but while we're on the topic of abundant harvest, I've talked to some ant players about this in the past where some people have tried uh, Kahira as a green card as the uh, commander slash companion to pay mana, put the green card to your hand, and then force a vigor against like Moon Stompy or whatever. Because force of vigor is a card that makes a lot of sense for combo decks. It hits Chalice, it hits, you know, Trinisphere, all that good stuff. But the problem with these decks is they don't play playable green cards outside of like Veil of Summer or, or Abrupt Decay. And if you have Abrupt Decay, you can just answer it. I could see a world where Abundant Harbor starts seeing play in combo at some point to turn on Force of Vigor. Like, it is a playable card. Um, I'm not sure what these shells look like yet. I, I haven't done enough research. I have a full-time job. But I think Abundant Harvest is good enough in Storm Combo to turn on Force of Vigor. And we're getting closer and closer to that green threshold where Force of Vigor could start being a sideboard uh, consideration. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, that is definitely a great way to use that card. Um Another one is, right. it was before Modern Horizons 2 came out, but uh, Matt Vuk, he uh, pioneered this mir- Chrome Mox Miracles deck, where uh, it, it seems preposterous to put Chrome Mox in a control deck, because that's antithesis to control. You want card advantage over time, not wasting card advantage for early, advantage, for early tempo advantage. But uh, the Monastery Mentor plus four cantrips including four abundant harvest like refilling the hand very quickly like i think monastery mentor is a card that can tie break whether you want a large number of abundant harvests in your control deck or not like rather versus hitting your land drop straight up like that's an incentive to be more spell based when i don't think those incentives are really there if your deck can cantrip and turn the corner quickly with endurance and or whatever is going on. Like, I, I think that you're going to have enough cards to play. You just need to hit your land drops to play them. 
So I want to talk about Chalice for just a second. Um, Red Prison is putting up a fair number of results and challenges right now, and I think Chalice of the Void is maybe the worst it has ever been in Legacy. But I think Blood Moon, on the other hand, its stock is pretty high right now because of like how good it is against Urza's Saga. So like right now we're we're talking about like how all of these decks have picked up extra answers to Chalice, but like because so many decks are shoving Urza's Saga in it, I think uh, I think the Blood Moon side of like the Red Prison Moon Stompy decks is very well positioned. Let me let me talk about that real quick because uh, putting on the Judge hat. So if you're if you haven't seen this or heard about this yet. Blood Moon kills Urza Saga. It doesn't turn it into a mountain. It puts it straight into the graveyard. And the reason for that is Urza Saga is in is a saga enchantment in addition to whatever else is going on. So even if it becomes a mountain, it's still an enchantment and it's a saga. And the rules of sagas is that they are sacrificed as a state-based action when the number of lore counters on it is equal to or greater than the total number of chapters it has. So Blood Moon erases all the chapters that Urza Saga has, but the game still knows it's a saga, and it has zero counters on it, and zero equals zero, so boom, it's gone. Same thing with Tide Shaper, or Spreading Seas, or you know, Seas Claim, whatever. Like, if you can turn Urza Saga into a land, it's into something different than uh, in Urza Saga, it's gone. Just straight out of play. So that's a cool interaction that wasn't in- in- instantly apparent to me when I saw these cards. On the, yeah, the first time it happened to me, I'm like, okay, is this a bug or is this how it's supposed to happen? Because like the rules for sagas are not written on the cards with sagas. Like there's just too much text there. It was a feature. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a feature. Um, I definitely played a uh, land control merfolk deck recently that had four Rashadon Port, four Wasteland, four Dockhand, four Tide Shaper. And I vindicated so many Urza Sagas in that league with Tide Shaper. That felt good. Just put it in the graveyard. Uh, I don't. I don't even want Island Walk. Just get rid of your card. Like that. That was pretty great. Uh, I remember the other thing I was going to say about black cards. By the way, uh, Bryant said that black is dropping in the power rankings of Magic colors, and Underground Sea was like the marquee Legacy land for most of Legacy, and recently. In one of my videos, somebody commented like, LOL, every time Brian's opponent plays Underground Sea, he thinks they're on Doomsday. And it's like, well, what decks play Underground Sea right now? <laughs> like, uh, like that that land has fallen so far from where it once was. Just like, uh, obviously, you could still be Bug. Bug still has a place. Uh, most or many combo decks still are on Underground Sea. But if I see Underground Sea Ponder, I'm going to start behaving like my opponent is on, is on Doomsday. And I think that is just a reasonable bet right now in Legacy because not many decks are black. So I'm going to poke fun at my very good friend Alex McKinley here, who is a writer for theepicstorm.com. Alex has like, if you know if those like dolls where you could pull a cord and they have a catchphrase, any single time someone leads on Underground Sea Ponder or Preordain, Alex goes, my ant senses are tingling. And we're always like, why are you not thinking Doomsday? Alex always immediately goes to Ant, even though Doomsday is way more probable. So shout out to Alex. Love you, buddy. But uh, it's just super funny. And it's the same thing Brian is talking about here. Yeah, it's become a meme on my channel that like now every time somebody leads on Underground Sea, I'm like, watch their Doomsday. Give it two turns. Doomsday is going to be on the stack. And guess what? It is 
probably like 80 or 90 percent of the time obviously that's not a real meta share but like of people playing underground sea many of them are in fact playing doomsday I recorded a Doomsday League with uh, Max Carini this week, and I think one of the most interesting things about Doomsday is how few black cards it actually plays. They play two to maybe three discard spells in Doomsdays and Dark Rituals, and their plan for beating permanent-based stuff is just, we're going to play eight forces, good luck trying to resolve anything, because I'd rather not spend time answering your stuff. Uh, it just shows how, how actually blue Doomsday is. It's not really a blue-black deck, it's like a blue deck splashing black. Well, you should tell my Doomsday opponents that they only play two or three discard spells, because every time I thought seize them, I, like, take their duress, their hand is nothing, and their hand is, like, land, land, street wraith, and then I take their duress to protect my force of will, then they cycle street wraith, draw for turn, duress me Doomsday. Every time. Every fucking time. And <laughs> I'm not- this is a fact. You can check it out. It's all on video. So many times. Okay, they're empty. Cycle street wraith, you're dead with protection. <laughs> Get out of here with that doomsday players i actually think that deck is insane and i wish i had the dedication to learn it because i think that is actually a deck where if you hone the craft it will pay out which i don't think is true there are a lot of decks in legacy that are too hard to play for what you get out of it even at the mastery level but i don't think doomsday is one of them i think you will get paid if you you put in the work my uh, clickbait title for that episode or for that video was it is the best non-Delver deck in Legacy. And I truly believe that if you are good enough with that deck, I think it is. And it's the best deck that isn't Delver. Uh, it's just like you get to play eight forces to check anything your opponent's trying to do. The only thing it's bad against is the force deck that's also super fast. If I were not a like variety content creator, I would have learned that deck already. 100%. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Uh, although for the sake for the sake of my own personal record and events, please do not learn Doomsday. I can't beat it. Yeah, neither uh, can I. When you're playing meme deck lists, um, they're not very good at fighting Doomsday, and more generally, legacy decks aren't really good at fighting Doomsday. So, like, enjoy your wins. The Doomsday players are all uh, they have a plan for endurance now already. They're playing Shellback Emrakul like it's 2009. Yep. Yeah, I had to board in back to basics against Doomsday just as a sidestep for their sidestep and. It's like, well, if they just go for Thassa's Oracle, I have fucking back to basics in my hand. But I, I don't know. Like, and I'm I'm just going to like write a love letter to Doomsday players right now, like really good Doomsday players, because you get one shot to stack the correct five cards in the correct order to win the game and protect from the things that you need to protect from. And every time my opponent's Doomsday resolves, it's like, well, I have this like stifle but that doesn't beat Discard. I have this Red Blast, but that doesn't beat Force of Will. Or like this or that, I have Wasteland, but that only helps if they're on Shelldock. And it tur and I have like whatever, but it only helps if they're on this. And it's like, oh my god, like how do they always know what five things to get? Because they always do the right one. Like if they just choose wrong, they lose. And it's not even like necessarily like an objective like well Shelldock is more likely to be effective against the three endurance deck it's like the game where i didn't have endurance and i did have wasteland they went for oracle and it's like how did you know <laughs> how did you do this you're so fucking smart and i'm so jealous but yeah that's my love letter to the doomsday masters out there good job i have the opposite uh love letter for brian so i hate letter any single time i get parodians doomsday and this happens a lot 
and then I'm losing because it's an unwinnable matchup for me. And then they build a pile that involves casting Predict because for some reason people can't quit that garbage magic card. And they mill their Thassa's Oracle with Predict and then exhume it. I lose my shit because it just opens up that deck to Graveyard Hate when it never needed to be weak to it to begin with. I'm like, why are you doing this? If you just built better piles, you would never need it. Uh, not exhume, uh, unearth. You would never need unearth. And it just drives me nuts that they're choosing to run that garbage card in their deck. I have never seen someone fucking go for an unearth like that. Yeah, I've never seen that. What are you getting paired against? You'll see it at some point. You're going to be like, this is why Brian's getting angry is because they never needed to lose to surgical, but they're just opening themselves up to it anyway. So I could see a doomsday pile wanting to include unearth. So you can like Oracle with two cards left in the deck. If they kill or counter it, you can refire again. And it's like a, a one card reload on your Oracle. But the idea of like setting up a pile with the plan of predicting my Oracle into the bin just to unearth it. I don't know. That sounds wild to me. But Doomsday is Doomsday is wild to me. Like, I don't understand anything that's happening. So <laughs> good for them if they figure that out. All right. Can we talk about Modern Horizons 2 and its effect on Legacy some more? I think Phil wanted to talk about uh, Ragavan Standstill. This deck is, is fucking wild. Um, so uh, all three of us are going to have this pulled up right now, uh, because let me, let me read the, uh, the cards in this deck. I don't think I'm going to go through the whole deck, but let me hit the, the important things. Seven creatures, four Ragavan, one true name nemesis, two Murktide Regent. So four one drops, a three drop, and two sevens. Good start. Uh, we got the normal four brainstorm, four ponder, two lightning bolt. That's all you need of that. One prismatic ending, three stifle. And then you ready? Four days, four Force of Will, four Swords of Plowshares. Then for the Urza Saga package, we have a Needle, Pithing Needle, a Retrofitter Foundry, and a Soul Guide Lantern. Two standstill, just the two. That's the right number. And then 22 lands. Remember how our control decks are playing 19? Here we have a Tempo deck playing 22. But four of them are Urza Saga. And the rest just make mana. There's a Caracas uh, and three Wastelands. And... This deck is insane. Like, whoever's brain this came out of, congratulations, because this is so crazy. And so it won a challenge last weekend, or two weekends ago at this point, and then it got first and second in a challenge this most recent weekend. Uh, and then uh, on the, the Sunday challenge, it, it didn't perform. But uh, two wins and a second place over uh, the course of a week across the four challenges. And that's pretty impressive for this deck that looks so insane on paper. Yeah, when I look at this, I'm just like, okay, so the Caracas and the Four Urza Saga and the Three Wastelands don't actually really cast any of your spells and also don't work with days. And yet, you know, scoreboard, the the deck is, is doing well. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty classic... Like, once you get over the shock of four Ragavan, four days, two standstill in a tech together. <laughs> like that just, like the numbers look crazy. But you start to see that every single threat in this deck requires a different answer. Like you got four Ragavan, so start the pressure early and often. They're going to be frantically searching for the plow or whatever so they don't get buried with their own cards. And then if they find the answer to that, there's Trinam Nemesis, which I mean, hope you got Plague Engineer. And then at the top end, Murktide Regent, which we discussed earlier, dodges a lot of removal. And Ragavan is a four of, like, once it's done being a one drop that they have to respond to, you just strategically dash it in whenever you feel like later on, because this deck can grind and play a longer game. And 
the Urza saga just arrives at some point and starts making constructs. And it's just so crazy all around. And I actually love the two standstill. The the most recent iteration of Sharkstill, I only have three in, and that's a dedicated standstill deck. So the fact that this tempo deck that just wants a way to reload is playing two makes a ton of sense to me. And it, it really shows me that the people who designed this deck really did the work and found the numbers that they wanted. Also, just in case you're not playing a lot of Legacy, um, I would like to just say something obvious. Ragavan makes treasures. Treasures are artifacts. The The second and third stage, well, the second stage of Urza Saga that makes the construct looks for the number of artifacts you control. That counts treasures. Those two cards synergize. Yes, the Raggy Daddy does like Urza a lot. I was talking with somebody about this recently. True Name Nemesis. Is this a legacy power level card anymore? I'm not convinced it is. That said, no one plays answers to it anymore. Plague Engineer is probably the lowest levels that it's seen play in a very long time. Uh, Who plays Council's Judgment anymore with Prismatic Ending? Not that people are playing it pre-Modern Horizons 2 anyway. But the cards that took over for Trinema Nemesis were like Hole Breacher, Endurance, a bunch of these other cards over the last year where Trinium just like hasn't seen play even in the Delver decks. And all of a sudden we're seeing it here in this list. I wonder if it's because nothing answers it anymore. Is it finally effective again? Um, I don't know. I'd be interested to see how it shakes out over the course of the next month or so. Yeah, so being playing the, the spread of decks that I do for the channel, I have not in the past two weeks lost a game where I resolved to an Amnesis or won a game where my opponent did. And I, I probably play against it more than once because I'm out there in the wild doing weird shit. Uh, but this card is just, it's mini progenitus again. It's like, you know, 2013 or whatever it was where this card came out at first where nobody knew what to do about it. And once again, we're circling black, back to Black not being that great in Legacy right now. Plague Engineer was the most played card in Legacy, or at least top three for uh, a year and a half, two years. And now it's just you know, bottom of the barrel again. It's, it's out there somewhere and it'll be nice when you have it but if you have if you have that card are you naming merfolk or are you naming monkey against this deck because they have four ragavans and only one true name nemesis so what's the play on on the topic of cards that might come back i think stoneforge mystic has gotten a little bit better since modern horizons 2 got printed like while there's still a billion answers to stoneforge out there the cauldra that gets into play has been very good for me in Modern and pretty good in Legacy as well. Um, I saw a, uh, I think it was a blue, white, red Stoneblade list that was playing like Mother of Runes to try to like protect the Stoneforge Mystic and just like battle with Cauldra as quickly and as consistently as possible. And I thought that was a really neat idea that was worth exploring further. I said that in the preview episode. Yep. Good job. Yeah, I I have a a Bant build uh, or a Stoneforge build of Bant where I just cut my Shark Typhoons for Stoneforge Mystic basically, but the Bant shell is largely unchanged, like still three endurance, still uh, all the Coatles, all the things you'd expect. But that deck performed extremely well. It was really good magic, and I felt like I was in every game. It felt like Stoneforge Mystic was Stoneforge Mystic again, where uh, if you weren't around for those times where it was just genuinely this true threat that needed to be answered on turn two and frequently didn't and it generated card advantage even if they did have the bolt and like it just felt like 2017 magic in a good way 
and it was great. All right, grumpy old man Brian for a second, and this segues into our next deck. I've noticed a bunch of these Urza Saga decks are all running one Retrofitter Foundry under the plan that you are only going to use the mana ability to make a Servo, to then make a Thopter, then to make a 4-4. I don't actually like it that much in the Standstill deck, but also I've noticed it in lands. A number of land streamers have been playing Retrofitter Foundry, and I've run into at least one local who said, well, yeah, I copied X streamer's list that was playing it. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but like you're only using it the hard way. And I feel like the reason that retrofitter foundry was so good in ninjas is you didn't have to do it the hard way. This card is not a legacy power level card. If you have to, you know, level up four times. I think you're looking at it wrong. Why is that? The, the reason why retrofitter foundry is good is that it assumes that you already have some constructs. So Retrofitter Foundry hits play, and that's one artifact, and then you tap two mana and it makes another servo immediately. That's a second artifact. So you use Retrofitter Foundry to get an immediate power swing in the the power of your construct tokens. And then if shit goes wrong, you can try to grind with it. Yeah, also the like even in ninjas, board states frequently devolve to this. This is one of the secret powers of the ninja deck, is that you don't have to work up the retrofitter foundry chain. You can just go like two mana servo, two mana servo, seven mana, you get two. And a grindy game uh, where the the dust is settled, who's going to have the first thing? A servo every turn is a big thing. And I, I've won and lost a lot of games just like there's another servo, there's another servo, and you slowly get ground out. So while I agree it's not plan A and there's nothing hot going on here, just like converting your Ornithopter into a 4-4 on turn one, uh, this, also the fact that it's just part of the package. Like, if you just want to draw a card, Soul Guide Lantern's in this package, Pithing Needle will usually find a target, and Retrofitter Foundry is just like, you know, the third or fourth uh, saga of the game. If the game is somehow still going, uh, you can get this thing and you have a bunch of mana laying around. Uh, it, it's pretty good. Also, it continually generates threats under standstill. It's the kind of thing that will force an opponent to pop standstill, which is an important thing to do. So just the I agree that this is not a legacy playable card, but when you can chuck it into play for free at the end of generating a bunch of card advantage already, it starts to get a little tastier. So something that I like um, playing around within these shells is actually Shadow Spear. Um, that equipment is pretty clutch. I've lost to that one a few times. Yeah. Uh, so what? It's, it's. I think it's lifelink and trample, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like your your big plus your big, one plus one. Yeah. Your big bigs get to get through, and you get to use it to stabilize your your life total versus something like Delver. Um, I've slotted that into a couple of my Urza Saga packages and really liked it. Yeah, that card's been impressive. Also, I have another quick Ornithopter Ninja story. Uh, at the local event this past weekend, someone was on ninjas. They were playing against Storm. Ninja player goes turn one Ornithopter. Storm player goes turn one Zantid Swarm. And then they just blocked the Ornithopter, and the game was over. <laughs> it was like they couldn't get a ninja into play. And, like, they went into the tank. They were like, how does this go wrong? And in my head, I was, like, watching, thinking, like, it goes wrong if you don't block. It goes wrong if you don't block. And they're just, like, block with Zantid Swarm. <laughs> the opponent was like, land go. It was really nice. So uh, put, put one on the board for Zantid Swarm in combat. With Urza Saga coming out, I was like, I can run this in TS. It loves artifacts. TS is like 50% artifacts at this point. You know, all of me losing to Nolrod memes and whatnot. And I was like, you know what? In its final mode, it gets Lion's Eye Diamond or it gets Hope of Gear Per. 
right? Like, I should love this. I love Hopagirper. Like, it's one of my favorite creatures. I love Lion's Eye Diamond. Well, the problem is fucking endurance. It just, like, by the time that this searches up your one Hope of Gearper, the control deck has endurance or it has Ice Fang Quaddle. Like, Hope of Gearper isn't good enough anymore due to those two creatures in the matchups where you want it. And it just makes me incredibly sad. So let's talk about another deck that Urza Saga has slotted into, and that's Lands. So Lands is a deck that's one of my picks for the deck that has improved most in Legacy over the last couple of years. Because it used to be like you'd play a, a Rest in Peace versus Lands and they just like pooped themselves and they couldn't do anything. And now they just have like Valakut Exploration and Field of the Dead and Urza's Saga as fantastic ways to pivot and like deal with the, the hate that's commonly used against them. And Urza Saga happens to be particularly disgusting with the card Thespian stage. Brian, do you want to take that one? Yeah, Judge Brian reporting. So you copy Urza Saga with Thespian stage, and you end up with a an Urza, a tapped Urza Saga that has no lore counters on it. You don't get the ETB lore counter trigger, so keep that in mind. You're going to want to copy at your opponent's end step or in your upkeep. So when you go to your main phase, you go to chapter one. Uh, if you copy in your opponent's end step, no, it still goes to chapter one instantly. I'm lying. So, okay. So you copy the card, then at the beginning of your main phase, put a lore counter on it. Now Thespian Stage can tap for one colorless, and it'll keep that ability no matter what else happens. So if you copy a Dark Depths later on, and some, I guess that's a bad example. If you copy a like Glacial Chasm later on, you can tap it for one. Uh, so it'll keep that forever. And that's also true of the two tap make a construct. So turn two with your Urza Saga Thespian Stage, you, it gains the ability forever to pay two, make a construct. And then on turn three, in response to the tutor trigger, you can copy something like Basic Forest. And then the tutor trigger resolves and you get to search for an artifact, but the game no longer sees a Saga in play with three lore counters on it. It sees a Basic Forest, which does not have the ability of being sacrificed when it's at max lore counters. So now you have a basic forest that cannot be wastelanded, cannot be back to basic, cannot be blood mooned, and it's in construct mode. You can also just poop out a construct every turn for as long as the game lasts. And that's a crazy interaction. Yeah, that's uh, the one big level up I did like about lands. While I don't love the uh, retrofitter foundry, I think Urza Saga makes a lot of sense. Phil mentioned, and I could be wrong here, Brian, maybe you have more expertise uh, in this than I do. I've noticed that some of the lists with Urza Saga aren't playing the Field of the Dead plan anymore. Uh, I don't know if they're competing for slots or not, or if you just don't need it anymore when you have Saga, but I haven't noticed lists with both yet. Am I just looking in the wrong place? I have seen lists with both. I don't know if they're two weeks old or what. Like, uh, I imagine that the the win the game slot in lands is probably not huge like the number of slots you get so i've seen things like two or three dark depths instead of four because that's not really necessarily plan a anymore it's just a thing the deck can do and dark depths is pretty bad when you draw it alone uh then i've seen zero or one field of the dead compared to the, like the up to two we had seen previously i've seen two or three valakut exploration instead of the easy four that was in the deck leading up to this point so the win condition slot is what's being competed for here 
Okay, now, Bryant, I know you got a decent amount of flack during spoiler season for wanting to test out some new cards in Storm, uh, but, you know, your your win weight currently is, is really good with the new version that you're testing out, so talk to us about, like, how you've had to do some deck building changes. Yeah, here's a nice underhand pitch. Hit it out of the park for us. Do Take your victory lap about all the haters who did not like Galvanic Relay during spoiler season. You know, I'm in a lot of Storm groups. Not a lot of people believed in Galvanic Relay. I think there's probably two people. Shout out to Jax, who's in the Discord, who's a very innovative deck builder. Always thinks of, hey, this might not go into this slot, but it might create its own thing. Like Jax is responsible for the Peer into the Abyss Storm deck and always innovating. And then Tony Scaponi thought maybe this card will be good in Ruby Storm, which is obviously true. Like that's exactly what Ruby Storm wanted. But a lot of people weren't being open-minded about how you could fit Galvanic Relay into the deck. When I first read the card, I didn't see past the turn, like you get these cards next turn. That wasn't what I read. I read this is an uncounterable card advantage engine that plays through Narset. It plays through Whole Breacher. And I said, this might have potential. So then you think about, well, if it has potential, how do you possibly change your deck to adapt to it? And... I'll be honest, at first, I didn't have a whole lot of success because I wasn't adapting well enough. Uh, I was just like, maybe I'll play one here, maybe I'll play two there. Well, within the last two weeks, I've started reconsidering my deck. And I started thinking about how when Gitaxian Probe was legal, my deck was so good that I could afford to board a Ponder. And when I was like, okay, well, if that's the design space that I want to try here, why don't I try playing a full four Galvanic Relay in the board and against Delver variants, I'll board in up to three and board out Ponders because Delver, one, they have Pyroblast and two, you really need card advantage to beat them because they have these six to seven forces. They have days you need to overwhelm them in order to win and Galvanic Relay can help with that. But if you want Galvanic Relay to be playable, you have to maximize it. And if that's the case, you want all the Chrome Moxes, Mox Opals, Bright of Flames, etc. to power this out. And when I started doing that cyborg configuration, that's when I started seeing success. I completely changed my game plan to make this card work. Because for the last two years, I've been boarding out Chrome Moxes, boarding out Rite of Flames for Carpet of Flowers. And that's not the play pattern that I needed to take. That's old technology. Sometimes you have to adjust. And once I started adjusting, I started seeing that success. And that's not even all about, like, I could talk for a long time about Galvanic Real. I'm in love with the card at the moment. But against control decks, I am now boarding out Ad Nauseam. The deck that TS is designed around, I am boarding out Ad Nauseam now. I am all in on this Galvanic Relay uh, plan, and my win rate's reflecting. This thing is in many minds' desire. And I mean, this is before you two joined the cast, but I think it's like episode 10 of the Eternal Glory podcast. I wrote a love letter to Wizard saying, hey, Minds Desire should be unbanned. Here's why. And I still believe that. If it was unbanned, I might play one in the board now, but I'm not even sure. Like if it's better than Galvanic Relay, like it's harder to cast. Uh, it's expensive. It's a six drop. I can board in a bunch of Galvanic Relays. You can also chain them. You can cast it off right of flame. Like the card is just beautiful and i'm gonna stop ranting for a second so i can take a breath okay i'll i'll talk then so i played against this card for the first time yesterday and my opponent cast two spells and then cast a galvanic relay and sent a bunch of stuff to exile one of which was another galvanic relay so the next turn they they couldn't go off but they played like five spells and then a galvanic relay and then you bet your ass i died the following turn 
So they were able to kind of like piecewise build up over a couple of turns with Galvanic Relay in a way that was really interesting and very different from any play pattern that I had seen previously. It's the first playable Storm Engine, and I'm saying Storm Engine because people will be like, well, Doomsday, Storm Engine, that you can cast through a Gaddictique. And this is actually pretty important because now you can, you know, take advantage of the six to seven to eight spells you play, cast this Galvanic Relay, and now you're going to hit action, you're going to hit mana, but you have the possibility of hitting, you know, your one to two copies of Chain of Vapor, your Abrupt Decays, and then next turn you'll have everything you need in order to win. You're basically just storing resources for another turn while digging deeper into your deck. It's like, that's exactly what the Pauper Storm deck is doing right now. Uh, I mean, no, we're not a Pauper podcast, but that's the reason that deck is so good, is that if it can't achieve its goal, it just does the same thing next turn, but better and better and better. And the chaining is just really good. But I guess that goes back to the Mind's Desire comparison. So let's let's talk about the ooze then. Um, like Eve? From, from my side of the battlefield, this thing has just given me a, a goddamn middle finger three different times when I'm recording videos. It's like, okay, I'm going to duress my opponent. Fuck. Okay, I'm safe. I have force of negation. Fuck. Okay. Um, I have some lock piece in play. Oh, just a couple of those things came down and like ruined me. So we talked about changing play patterns. So Galvanic Relay... It changed the play patterns a little bit because you now have to forcible Burning Wish. And so many blue opponents are not forcibling Burning Wish because they go, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get a Thought Seize? No, I'm going to get Mind's Desire. I'm getting Galvanic Relay. So Ooze is very similar with Wishclaw Talisman. You can't let Wishclaw Talisman or Burning Wish resolve now because if you do, I'm going to get a Storm Spell that you can't interact favorably with. So against Delver decks, we actually board out Ad Nauseum like we do against the control decks and we're boarding in Eve or AV, whatever you like to call it. And if you let the Wishclaw resolve, we are going to bury you with an army of oozes. And it doesn't matter if I give you Claw because your deck doesn't have outs to it. A lot of the control decks right now don't have outs to ooze. Delver certainly doesn't. Um, So you're no longer afraid to give your opponent Wishclaw Talisman. And it's just like this giant weight off your shoulders. Like you can't do that with Empty the Warrens, but Eve or AV is so powerful that you can. And it's got a bunch of weird interactions. So, uh, Ether Sworn Canonist is a card that control decks side in to beat you. You can go Witch Claw Talisman, see if it resolves. And then you can go like Petal, Chrome Mox, Mox Opal, Lion's Eye Diamond, etc. AV. And AV is the one non artifact spell for the turn. And then all of a sudden you have this Ooze Army. Uh, and I've, it's actually possible for you to do the same thing with Lavinia because Lavinia checks for non-creature. So you can cast AV or Eve through Lavinia. Granted, your Lion's Eye Diamond is going to get countered, but if you just have the mana already, it doesn't matter. So it allows you to play the game in a different way. And you mentioned Force Negation. Eve is a storm spell that can't be hit by Flusterstorm. Like, it just changes the dynamics so much in these control matchups, these blue matchups, where people have these ideas of how to play the matchup, but they're just completely wrong now. Yeah, I had to leave in Supreme Verdict. My current build of Bant has two Engineer Explosives main and the Supreme Verdict in the sideboard. And normally two Engineer Explosives, like, we're good to go against Storm. Like, that that is the backup plan. But I had to cut in Engineer Explosives to bring in Supreme Verdict, and that felt so bad. But it's just what you have to do. And if you're unaware, they're copies of 
Eve Progenitor Ooze, they are not zero mana tokens. So their CMC right. is five. Good luck. Yep. Engineered Explosives does not hit that. It still gets the empty tokens, like, but does the deck even play empty anymore, or is it just up to Eve? And it's it's a one it? of, but like right now, my if I, I look at my spreadsheet, the game one percentage is like where it's a reasonable number. It's like four or five percent of the time I cast it, but post board, it's like one percent of the time because people have answers, um, and like there's just better things to do, like Galvanic Relay arguably could take its lot like so that way that sock could be like a massacre or something because they're very similar roles yep scary stuff and i feel like my win rate's so high right now i said that i'm at 78 percent over 40 matches which is like i said a small sample but i think when people adjust to start playing correctly against these new storm spells my win rate's going to go down it feels a little bit like when i switched to wish claw and my opponents had no idea what i was doing like, it feels the same. Like, I'm winning at such a high clip that it can't be real. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, like, you you found a new uh, niche to occupy. And uh, I was in that boat, too. Like, I mentioned this on the cast before. It wasn't until we recorded an Epic Storm video together that I understood that it's not the turn one 12 goblins deck anymore. It's the tap out every turn until you're out of gas. Like, Haymaker deck now. And... Uh, now you've pivoted again and like sitting on Flusterstorm, uh, holding up engineer explosives. Those are not outs anymore. It's crazy. All right. Should we move on and uh, wrap up the cast by talking about vintage for a few minutes? Let's do Sounds it. Sounds good to me. So I am a hater and a classic hater of Key Vault and Vintage. I've always felt like it's like this win more cheese combo and now it's good. Urza Saga has completely changed the game. So the initial list that came out were mono blue and they ran like thought cast and artifact lands and they were like pretty innovative, but they were weak to a lot of the stuff that vintage tries to do. Like a lot of the shop stacks actually just play for Norad on the board um, and it just got hosed weak too. And then our good friend, the power nine ran a list that was blue black. And when you go back to a more traditional list, that's blue black, you get tutors so you get Demonic Tutor, you get Vampire Tutor, and you get Mystical Tutor. Well, two-thirds of those get Time Vault. In your lands, just put Key into play. So a lot of the time now, your opponents will go like, your like Hollow Vine opponents will go Chal Zero, and you're just like, yeah, whatever, Key Vault you. Good game. Like, it beats so many of the ways that people try to beat PO so easily. It's like having another just, like, tinker combo. One of the big level ups I had last year playing so much PO last summer was that tinker was just the best thing you could do in vintage, and you wanted to maximize finding tinker, so I played mystical. This is just another combination of cards that's on the power level of tinker. And, like, getting into the Urza Saga itself, like, PO plays an absurd number of, of artifacts, and so, like, you don't need to warp your deck around the Urza Saga all that much, like, other than adding in the Vault Key Package. Like, the rest is already just there. So it's a low-cost win condition that, like, also gives you another way of interacting through the things that normally beat you. Stupid Hate Bear is in play. Like, doesn't matter. I will make a pair of 4-4 or larger creatures, and, like, I will dominate combat. There have been a lot of games that I've lost with PO where my opponent just has, like, Lavinia, or uh, what? What is that Archon? That two three bird shit? Archon of Amaria, yeah. Archon of Amaria, just like these uh, Cambal, 
uh, like these things that they put into play and they just attack me with it seven to ten times and the game ends because I can't do anything. Or like Null Rod, Collector Oof, and just like a pair of six sixes, here we go. <laughs> like th- Those will w- beat that stupid bear every time. So that that's really exciting to have that pivot as well. I know that Brian also, I think you did too, Phil, right? Like we all played in all three Eternal Weekends, if I remember correctly. I did, one yeah. of my round I, ones. I played in two of the three. Okay. I didn't do the weird hour one. One of my round ones, just, just to start off the entire event, my opponent just goes, Tundra deafening silence. And in my mind, I said, are you fucking kidding me? Like... Was it Phil? <laughs> it was not Phil. <laughs> but I was just like, I am in round one of a huge event, and my opponent just goes turn one on the play, game one, deafening silence. And I was like, there goes my event. Uh, because like with PO, once you get in the, the winner's bracket, you don't face a bunch of the stuff that would normally beat you, because PO beat, at the time beat the winner's metagame. And I did not do well in that event after losing to deafening silence. And these new builds of PO can beat the weird stuff that also used to beat PO due to having this backdoor. Yeah, it's super nice. And even like spheres just out of shops, like if they even if they get like three spheres and a lodestone golem in play, you just play your land, tap it twice and you have a huge idiot. And it's awesome. Like it, it it's crazy. Like I, I'm i going to stop ascribing adjectives to it because th- you get it. Like it, it's just like they made this card for PO to sidestep what Xerox and hate bears are trying to do to beat it. And thank you, Wizards. Like, I will play PO anytime it's playable. But lately, I've uh, I've sold out the, the team and played Xerox. But I'll, I'll come back. If you bring me in, I'll come back. So, Brian, you're probably going to think that I'm dumb here. But I wasn't a big fan of running Urza. Urza was this, like, one of Wincon. And I said to myself, like, there has to be something better in this only blue-black PO deck. Because you're not splashing white for Mentor. You don't need Mentor when you have Urza Saga. And I was like, I was racking my head. I'm like, I guess I could run, like, one Sedgemore Witch, but that doesn't seem great. And I was going back and forth, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to try Urza. Let's see how it is. Like, people have to be running it for a reason, right? It beats people running Collector Oof. And I was like, oh... Yep, turns your Mox Sapphire back into Mox Sapphire. Yeah, it's just so good. And it wins a lot of, like, it just gives you another construct too. And it finally clicked. And at worst, it pitches to force. Like, I know that's like a pretty low floor and you could say that about anything. But it mattered. Like, I've yeah, had times where Mentor couldn't pitch. And I'm like, okay, I guess I lose to Doomsday or whatever. Yeah, a lot of the time when Urza resolves, like, I think I've played a lot of that card compared to the average human across formats. And... When that thing resolves, in addition, to, like unlocking your mana is frequently flavor text, but the 5-5 five five that comes with it is usually the thing that like is going to end the game and or at least stabilize the board so you could start using that mana that you got from the Urza. Like that, that big, just that big animal that comes with it is, that is not the flavor text. Tap your shit for blue is the flavor text. And uh, they're both great abilities, but having that creature is just so huge on that note um i think nettle cyst is currently underplayed in vintage i've been experimenting with that card in in some leagues that i've been trying and the ability to just like tap a workshop and produce a fucking huge body very consistently is pretty gross i'd like to go back to mtg lore for a second phil I would like to say that Mishra got the short end of the stick. Being printed in Time Spiral, that card is trash. If it had been printed years later, 
like his brother Urza, Mishra might have been a playable Magic the Gathering card. But instead, printed in 2007, uh, hot garbage. Mishra is hot garbage. The I listened to the Resleepables podcast, which I think I mentioned once earlier in this podcast, but go listen to it. It's phenomenal. But the Modern Horizons 1 episode uh, w- came out a week or two ago. And they had Cedric and Patrick, like they always do, but they also had Michael Majors, who was the lead designer of Modern Horizons 1. So we got a lot of really deep insight into design of that set. And he said it was really, really, really important. Like they spent a lot of resources on making sure Urza fucks. Like they, <laughs> like they needed, they needed this like big, like anti-hero. Is he the good guy? Is he the bad guy? Either way, he's like the pre-Bolus main character of magic story from like alpha to apocalypse basically before we started going off into like Lorwyn and other weird places but urza was the central story figure for all of magic leading up to that point and they knew they had to hit him right and that the cycle that urza is in with yogmoth yogmoth is also probably a little too pushed but that's also an enormous story character that didn't have a card before sarah didn't quite hit um I forget I actually forget who the other cards in the cycle are but there's one monocolor legend and they're all main story characters from old lore but it was very important to them to hit Urza it they said that it was it would be better if Urza came in a little too good than if Urza came in a little too bad just for the story and the lore and all the implication of what Urza needs to be as a magic card and I think they they hit the secret sauce on that one oh for sure yeah I'm impressed. I remember reading that card and just like, boing, boing, boing. Like, <laughs> I, I'm in for that one. But yeah, I think I might have to find myself a nice Urza for my vintage deck. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, it, it is a fun of. Uh, Japanese foil old borders do exist now. Or are you still on original pack printing only? I'm um, a boomer original yeah. pack only. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, good luck with that one. That's going to be... The pride and joy of your collection, though I think that is a safe investment, like literally whatever it costs, that's just such an iconic card, iconic character, EDH playable, like you're you're going to pay out over time on the, that investment. So this has come up a few times and going back to the Mishra thing, I bet employees at Wizards look at cards and go, I really wish I could redo this one. Like Mishra is a card that I bet that they that they wish that they could remake, but a bunch of these keywords that are coming out like they want to use a word but then they can't because it's like some old card name from 1993 that stinks yeah like when we look at the D set there's like take a path and then there's like these two like keywords a bunch of those like i bet that they're like oh i wanted to use some card but it's like an arabian nights whatever yeah marrow has definitely said that the use of card names in the early days stifles them once in a while like you have really terrible cards called like jump or leap or lance just these like really clean flavorful things that just suck it's just like a one blue instant that gives a creature flying for the turn or whatever and it's like i'd really like to put jump on something cool like something really evocative like like damn when when we saw damn did anyone not say damn and like not as a joke either but like the joke is also true because like you see this card it's called damn it's powerful and you're you are just like damn like that is hot I'm glad that name didn't get wasted before they knew what to do with no it. No kidding. You, you might not believe me here. Uh, last night, there's this local that hasn't showed up since pre-COVID, and somebody opened up a foil dam out of a pack. And I go, 
that is a Travis card. And they go, what? I'm like, that is a U card. In there. And he goes, what's it do? And I read it and he's like, damn, that's good. And I'm like, that is a U card. Like, exactly. Damn. So my one of my favorite interactions in Magic ever has happened with that card. Because um, Cauldra and the germ that it, that it, that's attached to it are indestructible. So I was playing Dead Guy Ale, and I just got to, like, overload Dam, wipe the board, and leave myself with Cauldra in play, and just, like, crash Damn. in for five. And I was just like, oh my god, I could do this every day forever and be a happy man. Yeah, that that's nice. Big fan of that. So there was this other card that was uh, previewed from Modern Horizons 2. And when it was previewed, I could have swore the, the internet said the sky was falling. It still looks like it's up there. Uh... Phil, what card is this? Uh, I, we have to talk about the card that broke Vintage. Uh, we have to talk about Voidmere. Yeah, so uh, I put this in the notes, and we we gave Brian that under or Brian to that underhand pitch uh, for Galvanic Relay, and I'm taking one here on Voidmere because the Vintage community, and it, it wasn't like randos who were, didn't play Vintage. It was like actual Vintage people, like lifelong Vintage stalwarts of the community were like, writing these serious, like, heartfelt, like, Wizards of the Coast has made it clear they don't care about vintage for years, but just printing something this egregious is is unfathomable, and this might be the thing that really gets me to sell off my Mishra's workshops and never come back. And I'm like, I, I like, made a number of more aggressive than normal tweets about this card at the time. Like, are you serious? Like, have you even read this thing? This is not going to show up anywhere. And it's only good against shops on the play when you can turn one it like i i think i already granted about this card four weeks ago in our preview episode i think i took i took i went out of my way to make this rant already and guess what we're four weeks in this card shows up in two lists if you search mtg goldfish vintage results since modern horizons was added to magic online there are two posted lists one of them was a 4-2 for 10th place in a challenge, and the other was Brian Kelly, vintage champ, absolute genius, but known maniac with his card choices, who 3-1 some random casual event that just got posted on Goldfish for some reason. That list also included Judges Familiar, for context. <laughs> Those are the two posted lists of Void Mirror, which was gonna, you know, knock shops out of the metagame, break the paradoxical outcome mirror, this thing, that thing, just guess what? The average person, even someone with a lot of experience playing Magic, does not know how to evaluate Magic cards, and Void Mirror was just one of them. And uh, this card is in the dustbin, where I expected it to be. To uh, pitch the Resleevables once again, that is a direct quote that Brian just said from that episode, is that Magic players are not very good at evaluating cards, and if they were, this would not be an interesting game. Uh, I loved that Modern Horizons episode, so if you haven't listened to it, go listen to the Resleevables. Cedric and Pat are just truly awesome. Make sure you check that out. Also, I'd like to clarify that the actual direct quote from that episode was, Magic players are dog shit <laughs> at building decks and evaluating cards. Patrick Sullivan yelled, magic players are dog shit. Those were his words, and he is so right. And uh, he was talking about Hogak and how it was so obvious, quote unquote, that Hogak was broken with Ultra of Dimension Carrion Feeder, when actually, like, probably, like, two people on the planet are were capable of figuring that out. And then once, like, it, somebody put a magnifying glass on it, the decks iterated quickly. But, like, honestly, in a pre-internet world, 
Hogak would still be unbanned because nobody would know this was a thing. Like, and people are are dog shit. And even even if you're not, even if you are like pretty skilled, I think that the sky is falling mentality can just be saved. At least give it a few weeks. Don't embarrass yourself. It's okay to be wrong, but you don't need to go out of your way to embarrass yourself either. And I think the only sky is falling rant in my entire magic memory that had any credence to it at all was Zvi Mauschewitz going off about Companion off of the Ikoria spoiler, saying, obviously, having a free card in your opening hand every game is fundamentally out of bounds for a game of Magic the Gathering. And that resulted in the first ever card mechanic errata in standard so maybe the first ever card mechanic errata period like have they ever changed a full mechanic like that i don't think they have like individual cards have gotten tweaks here and there but whole mechanics like that was the only one that really hit the mark and it only hit the mark because luris was a thing the rest of our Zerta was on the edge but the other eight were fine so take it easy if you're not zvi mauschwitz and it's not a companion level design error <laughs> just, just take a breath let let things sort out and then check mtg goldfish a month later and learn that the card that you're selling out of vintage for has been in two decks ever and one of them was alongside judges familiar